Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Autism Stories. I'm your host, Doug Bletcher, the founder of Autism Personal Coach. Autistic people are the true experts of the autistic experience, and Autism Stories is where we interview autistic people to learn from their stories, experiences, and get their advice. If you would like to be notified about each week's episode of Autism Stories, we suggest you subscribe on your favorite podcast listening platform. We would also appreciate it if you could give us a positive rating and review, as it will help others to learn about Autism Stories. Something that's really important with Autism Personal Coach is supporting our clients in goals that are truly meaningful to them. Sometimes that's obvious as the client really has a great understanding of how coaching can be beneficial in their lives. Other times it can be very challenging, which is why I'm excited today to talk with Rachel Dorsey about her goal writing course for autistic students. We hope you enjoy today's conversation. Rachel, thanks so much for joining us today. Hi, Doug. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Wanted to start out and learn where does your story in the autistic community begin? Yeah, so my story in the autistic community began actually first before like knowing that I was autistic. I was actually a speech pathologist working, I wouldn't say with the autistic community, with implies a sense of like equalness and like belonging. I was working as, in within a therapy relationship, there's a power dynamic. So I was the authority there like society imposed that role of authority onto me and that's how I started then through a combination of really feeling like the autistic clients I'm seeing like their point of view seems completely reasonable to me I don't understand why it's a problem for everyone else but then supervisors are yelling at me for not doing it the right way, not doing therapy or approaching therapy the right way. I'm doing air quotes now. (laughs) (laughs) And that through a combination of work-related difficulties with the like authority types of figures within a work setting led to me having a, I don't know if it would be considered burnout, like autistic burnout. I'm not sure if it would be considered just a number of significant PTSD types of reactions or meltdowns. It's really hard to dissect what was going on there. But I found through the internet more about autism in adults. And then just through that, started me on my path towards two years later getting an autism diagnosis. Now you mentioned uh, you're an SLP. What was it initially about speech language pathology that made you want to study this area and make it a career? To put it in kind of existential or like philosophical types of 
framework or terminology and how I conceptualize it in my head. And this still holds true. I knew when I was an undergraduate, and I knew when I was in high school that, I'm going to start crying, (laughs) that I wanted social connections that, for some reason, I was unable to get. And at the time, when I was in high school and then exploring various degrees and college. I thought the reason for this was because from early high school, I was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis, and then I had received the diagnosis of inflammatory arthritis. And so I had put it onto these feelings of, well, I'm not getting the social connections I desire. I placed it onto those. And they might have played some sort of role. But when I was in college and exploring different fields and careers, I first settled on linguistics because I loved analyzing language patterns. But I wanted something that was more applied and helped people. But at the time, I'm like, yeah, speech pathology is a helping profession, sure. And then through volunteering, and I do a lot of observation of speech therapy sessions, I really deeply connected, just as an observer, with the clients that were being seen and felt like they want the same thing that like I've always wanted and so starting to get like a little trembly in my voice because I'm getting emotional yeah I guess looking back it was primarily because I'm autistic and now I'm primarily seeing autistic clients so what does that say mm-hmm. exactly Now, recently, you wrote a really great blog about what strength-based really means from from an autistic clinician um, point of view. You know, I I often hear this term, and I'm quite skeptical when clinicians and organizations talk about this because I don't know if they truly understand what it means to provide strength-based support. So what does strength-based mean um, to you? Yeah, so first of all, I agree. I'm also skeptical when when clinicians just sort of add on strengths-based or neurodiversity (laughs) affirmative care. I'm really skeptical of that. So any of good right to be. Well, first of all, I'll say that I was saying the strengths-based for kind of a while. And then it, it dawned on me, wait. The way I'm using it and my autistic friends are using it is different than how the majority of clinicians are using it. I mean, I have a lot of autistic speech therapy friends, autistic occupational therapist friends, and the way we're using it is different. And then I had to learn, oh, it's not really true how it's widely used, is it? The common usage I'm seeing is strengths-based meaning neurotypical strengths, like the kid is 10, 
and may be using mouth words to speak some and okay great they have mouth words yes let's like go for that yes oh but they still are like really really into sesame street uh we're uh, uh, now like we're not really gonna like talk about that we're gonna focus on the strengths which are their mouth words and so that is the usage that i not all the time but i largely see i think when people casually sort of throw out that term (laughs) strengths based when doing therapy or uh hold on i'm trying to find my word i don't like clinical terminology of like intervention or treatment and even like doing therapy yeah i guess even though i'm a therapist i'll just say helping strengths based when trying to help autistic clients is autistic strengths and in order to know really what autistic strengths are you need to have a pretty thorough knowledge of autism and the autistic experience because i can easily take that same client who's 10 and is using some mouth words to communicate and really like Sesame Street. And no, I'm not going to take Sesame Street and like use that as like a prize within therapy. I'm going to find out more about what this client loves so much about Sesame Street and appreciate that and find more opportunities for the client to appreciate the same thing or related things. And I'm not going to pretend to, you know, just indulge the student by being with them. I'm going to genuinely, authentically appreciate this time that we have together over this thing that I'm not into Sesame Street, but I love the passion that the student has. And so using that as a grounds for connection, for bringing more autistic joy, for exploring many ways that the student can communicate what they want to communicate regarding Sesame Street, I guess I'm using more of an example as opposed to like specific a definition of strengths-based, but I guess to put it all together, it means valuing autistic strength through a thorough understanding of the autistic experience. And yeah, I guess that's where I'll, that's where I'll end it. (laughs) (laughs) Something that, I think about in regards to a strength-based approach is to not make assumptions about your clients or your students' emotions. Oh, for sure. Yeah. What would be some reasons uh, you feel that maybe a therapist shouldn't label uh, an autistic client's emotions? Yeah, well, so you could be wrong. (laughs) Non-autistic people commonly mislabel autistic states have a really hard time interpreting how autistic people are and so by putting that label on 
it's very easy for that. There's, I mean, there's several reasons. That label is the students actually feeling ashamed, but then you put the emotion word sad instead, then that sets the student up to communicate the word sad in future times where they're feeling, actually feeling ashamed or related emotions to ashamed. And then when the student tries to communicate how they're, I say student, but it can be, it can be an adult. Like this, like I'm talking about it with children, but this very thing has happened. This has happened to me. I mean, I spent, no doubt I've been anxious my entire life, but when it doesn't expand beyond that, when I'm only telling healthcare practitioners I feel anxious because that is the only label that's really been given to me, that that label of anxious, because my body feels very similar states when I'm anxious to when I'm feeling like ecstatic it feels very similar and it's hard to discern them and so there are all these times where I was actually feeling ecstatic in hindsight that I thought oh I'm just anxious and so I'll just you know take a Xanax or two you know that's what you do that's what my physicians were telling me to do I'm not against medicine I'm on plenty but that was clearly an inappropriate use of the medicine. But I also hear kids, like, particularly with the word calm or relaxed, that is one. I see a lot of kids saying that they're calm or communicating through AAC or mouth words that they're calm. And they're not really calm. They're just saying that to get the other person off their back. Or they perceive calm as being like a routine that you go through to become calm, like the deep breathing. I had a child recently. I shouldn't have used the word calm, but I did in a session. And they got mad at me when I said that I'm doing what makes me feel calm and they got mad at me because I wasn't doing it the right way that their school has been teaching them to be calm. I'm kind of telling you all these possible scenarios that could happen upon well-intentioned but really careless use of just trying to label how autistic people feel or get students or children or autistic people into a different emotional state which may not be the one that they're actually at now focusing on strengths could you know one of the starting points could be with defining the goals that you may have in therapy you've created a goal writing for autistic students class and, I, you know, I read something that, that I loved where you said, I'm going to have to chuck it. I'm going to have to think a completely different way. And it's hard. So why do you think that, you know, when thinking about goal writing for autistic students, it's so particularly hard to do? I think about the role of goals in the, at least in the United States, because my experience has been in the United States. My research 
regard for the course was about the United States educational system. And I think about the role of goals, the common core state standards, which are specifically definitionally for the purpose of children moving throughout school to have skills that ensure their success in finding employment and going to college. And then through that, the United States is competitive with the global economy. That is the role of Common Core State Standards, and goals need to align with the Common Core State Standards. So it is a very daunting task to take this flawed system that's trying to just create non-disruptive workers and college students. It's very hard to take that and apply it to autistic people who will never, never fit within that oppressive framework. I mean, as a result, a lot of goals end up being really behaviorally oriented on students somehow not being a disruption. They tend to be about autistic students not missing these childhood milestones and like filling them in. They tend to be on interacting in the expected neuronormative type of a way so that when they graduate, they can find a job and go to college. Then through that, the United States is more competitive on the global economy. So it's quite daunting, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it, it definitely is. I've said for a long time our educational system has been, been broken. Yeah, and I kind of view that as like, I mean, I might be wrong in my, how I conceptualize it, but I think of it as like you can approach the schools and wanting to create change within the schools from like a top-down and bottom-up approach. Top-down is kind of how I think my course is trying to do. We have what we have, and so how do we, given the constraints of what we have, do better? Um, but there's also the bottom-up approach of, like, <laughs> through a lot of, like, policy work at the federal level, dismantling what's already there. Yeah. Now, learning about your goal writing course, one of the first things I thought about was masking. I, I'm wondering, how much do you think therapists not understanding about masking affects the goal writing process? That's a great question. Therapists not understanding what masking truly is. I think by now, and maybe that's too optimistic, I think... <laughs> A subsection of therapists have a superficial understanding of masking. And so they know that writing a goal aimed at uh, polite greetings to everyone passing by isn't good. And they know that writing a goal 
for um, discussion of a non-preferred topic for five minutes isn't so good. I I do discuss masking in the course. and I mean, I do discuss it as really like it's voluntary and involuntary. And in one of the case studies, I was a pre-K student of involuntarily masking. And then like, what do, you, what do you do then? Sorry, can you repeat the question? Sure. Learning about your course, I thought a lot about uh, masking. How much do you think therapists not understanding about masking affect the goal writing process? Okay. So I think if therapists have no understanding, then that is very alarming and creates a lot of very explicitly harmful goals. If they have a superficial understanding of masking and know some kind of basic general do's and don'ts, I mean, that's a good starting point. I would hope that if therapists had a really deep understanding of masking, it would lend itself to therapists kind of on their own able to think of, you know, maybe given some guidance here and there, ways to help students communicate socially the way that student prefers to communicate socially. I would hope that a deeper understanding would naturally lend itself to that. There's been a lot of information, you know, for a while from the autistic community certainly before I found out I was autistic, about masking, investigating masking really thoroughly through a both a personal lens and through a role of masking within society lens, within the autistic community. And this information has been out there for a while, but I guess, and that should have created many opportunities for clinicians to get a deeper understanding but I guess there's this habit of if you're a speech therapist you're only looking at what speech therapists have to say or if you're an occupational therapist you're only looking at what occupational therapists have to say although it's not as bad with an occupational therapy speech therapists it's like if you're a speech therapist you're mainly looking at the speech therapy literature I do have a blog post about masking. I didn't want to write one for a while because it was just reinventing the wheel. So many people have done it before me and I wasn't adding anything new and I only want to add new things. But if the only way that speech therapists are going to learn about masking is through me writing yet another blog post on masking, I'll do it. (laughs) And how can people learn more about and sign up for your goal writing for Autistic Students course? Yeah, so it is available through Learn, Play, Thrive. And there's my course, there's Meg, who's the owner, has her course, which is pretty focused on like executive functioning and environmental modifications you can do within the therapy session to best help your autistic client primarily through like an executive functioning sort of a standpoint, those supports. And so, yeah, my course is available through that. 
It's also, I mean, in case any therapists are listening, it's available for continuing education through ASHA and AOTA for 10.5 contact hours. After discussing autism and the role of goals within the school, the problem with kind of how things currently are, I go through eight case studies, completely de-identified, some of them real, some of them fictional, and you get to see proposed alternatives to the harmful, at worst, goals and just ineffective goals at best that we've been kind of using for years, and I certainly used for several years. Now, I always think that for therapists, it's really important to never stop learning. What would be some things that you've learned to continue to help you on your journey to be the best SLP you can be? Oof. Yeah, definitely agree. Never stop learning. And I'm still young in my, in my career, so I have a lot to learn. Regarding autism specifically, Generally, I would say there's been a, I've seen in the past years, a rise of autistic therapists. So seek those out. And then like the broader autistic community, of course, the autistic community, there's different kind of sub-communities. And I would say for a therapist who feels, like, intimidated, kind of going in, seeing, like, conflicting opinions and this and that, keep in mind the overarching themes from the sub-communities that you see. And try not to get too boggled down or intimidated by the details. I mean, I can name some specific resources if you want, but... Should I name specific resources? Sure, go for it. I really like the work of, oh gosh, I'm very bad at proper nouns. Um, I really like the work of Dr. Amy Laurent and Dr. Jacqueline Fed, Fed for Autism Level Up. They do a lot regarding regulation and more recently, interoception, which is the ability to sense your inner sensations. Foundations for Divergent Minds is a nonprofit that has a really solid course on just conceptualization of autism and helping autistic children or people. I really like the work that this isn't like a therapy resource, but I think that you could learn a lot from Maisie from Autism Career Pathways is uh, doing a lot of work with autistic adults and their path towards employment. I learn a lot from both Maisie and watching the interviews from those autistic adults. Those are kind of some big ones. Mm-hmm. Great resources. And, um, you know, Rachel, I really enjoyed the conversation. I really appreciate your time. Thanks so much for making time for me today and having this conversation. Thank you so much for having me. It was lovely talking to you. 
Thanks so much to Rachel for the conversation. To learn more about Rachel, please check out the link in the podcast description for this episode. It's probably not the first thing that most people remember when listening to this interview with Rachel, as she had so many great things to say. However, for me, when she talked early in in our conversation about how her artistic client's point of view was very reasonable to her and didn't understand why it's a problem for everyone else, that really connected with me because I found this to be true with so many clients of Autism Personal Coach. So many times autistic people are very logical and thoughtful people. And we help them to use this thinking so often with our coaching services. If you're someone who wants help to use your logic and expertise about your life, then book a call with me today. The link to book the call can be found in the podcast description of this episode. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Autism Stories. And if you did, if you could tell a friend, foe, or anyone you know about it so they could have the same enjoyable experience as you when listening to Autism Stories, it would very much be appreciated. If you love science, then next week's episode of Autism Stories is for you, as we will have a discussion about physics. Until next time, I'm Doug Bletcher of Autism Personal Coach. Talk to you then.